Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Dr. Nathan Hogeboom presenting Transfer Skills and Soft Tissue Injuries in Wheelchair Users with Spinal Cord Injury. Dr. Hogeboom is the inaugural postdoctoral fellow from the Durfner Foundation Grant in Regenerative Rehabilitation Research at Kessler Foundation. As part of his fellowship, he will be evaluating the safety and efficacy of a regenerative treatment designed to improve shoulder pain and function in wheelchair users with spinal cord injury who have not responded to therapy or other conservative treatments. For more information about Dr. Hogeboom, be sure and check out the description in this podcast. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Thursday, May 10th, 2018, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Neidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Neidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. Be sure and check out our next podcast with Dr. John O'Neill, Director of Employment and Disability Research at Kessler Foundation. He will be presenting Resource Facilitation, Early Inpatient and Assertive Outpatient Vocational Rehabilitation Services for Individuals with SEI on Thursday, June 7th, 2018. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, listen to us on SoundCloud, and tweet with us on Twitter. Let's listen in as Dr. Hogeboom presents his lecture. I am a, a newly minted postdoc, and I will today be talking to you about the first half of my doctoral dissertation, which is about transfer skills and how they transfers affect the development of soft tissue injury uh, using uh, ultrasound, basically. Too. Uh, so obligatory... This disclosure slides, uh, the National Science Foundation, Nidler, and the VA, which all funded my work in some way or another. We're familiar with this slide. If not, this is the, what's called the ICF classification of um, health conditions, the, the description of health conditions. It basically describes a health condition as a kind of a, a continuum of an in, kind of interweaving of these various factors such as body structures and functions, activities, participation, personal factors, and environmental factors. It's supposed to highlight that a disability or an, uh, a disease is not, just one, is not just the disease or one component. It is actually a multitude of components that work together uh, to influence essentially the living with the disease. So today, my work is really focused on the body's functions and structures part, specifically shoulder pain and tendinopathy, as well as activities, which are transfers. And ultimately, the goal is to focus on limiting pain and tendinopathy through transfers, improving transfers and technique in order to maximize participation. Here I have a model of rotator cuff tendinopathy. It's a so if you see, I don't know if you can see, where it says normal tendon, that's where most people lie. Um, so you or I, or you know, somebody who doesn't have a wheelchair, if you say, you know, do too many push-ups one day and you hurt your shoulder, generally the, the process is you, you know, ice it or you rest it, 
and eventually it kind of progresses back to normal and there's no long-standing injury. But a wheelchair user, they don't have that luxury. They must, if they injure their shoulder, uh, they must continue to use their wheelchair and use their arms to maintain independence and uh, just kind of get around, get in and out of the chair. Uh, and so what eventually happens is it progresses to degeneration and ultimately tears and leads to shoulder pain. That's why there's such a high prevalence of pain and pathology in this particular population. So the whole goal is to kind of keep, to limit the progression and keep these individuals closer to the normal tendon area through these various interventions, such as transfer training. And, or, I mean, it's pretty much impossible to prevent these things from happening, so the whole goal is, I guess, to extend or, or uh, attenuate the progression over to, to generation over time. So here's typical video of a transfer, right? This is just what someone will do to get it in and out of their chair. Uh, some people, I've seen numbers, you know, over 30 transfers in and out of the chair every day. If you're a highly independent wheelchair user and you need to go to the bathroom or you need to get into your car, you want to go to the movies or something, you want to go to a restaurant, you transfer in and out of your chair, it's pretty common. And so it's extremely important and vital for independence. And so any kind of pain or loss in function that's due to pain or pathology that would limit transfers would also severely limit independence and ultimately quality of life that can have tremendous negative impacts on, on these individuals' lives. What we found through some of my research and some of the people in my laboratory and throughout the past decades uh, that certain techniques can actually reduce the loading on the upper extremity during the transfer. So we focus on something and wheelchair positioning such as how close the chair is to the transfer surface and the angle of the, the chair, uh, how the wheelchair is positioned relative to the surface, as well as body position, foot position, and the actual movement of the individual from the chair onto the, the target surface. All these things kind of work together to reduce loading. Uh, it's, it's very complicated, but on the surface it seems, you know, Essentially what you want to do is you want to limit the time and the stress that's placed on the upper extremity during the transfer. Uh, it's so there have been tons of, a bunch of biomechanical studies, but we really haven't looked at what happens underneath the surface at the tendon level and at the, the actual site of, the, of the path, where the pathology would occur. So that's kind of what I was tasked to do with this particular study. The, the transfer assessment instrument is a 15-item a, a checklist, essentially, that kind of goes through different transfer techniques that would theoretically limit loading on the upper extremity. And so you can see here the clinician or the investigator, they would watch the person do the transfer, and they'd run through these 15 items and say, yes, they accomplished this particular technique or no they did not. And the 15 particular, the 15 techniques look at, as I mentioned previously, shoulder positioning. Are they in an impinged position? Are they close to the surface? Are their feet on the floor? Uh, are they basically setting themselves up to limit injury through their transfer technique? And I'm, you know, I could forward this to you. I have copies and they're freely available online. Uh, so I can always forward that to you if you if you want to reach out to me afterwards.
<clears throat> so as I said, the purpose of the study is to answer the question, do wheelchair transfers contribute to shoulder soft tissue pathology? And so what I did, what I wanted to look at specifically is how clinical ultrasound signs, transfer-related pain and technique are related, measured using that transfer assessment instrument, uh, how changes in biceps and supraspinatus tendon quantitative ultrasound parameters are associated with technique, as well as um, just how these ultrasound, these tendons change under ultrasound just in response to a, a bunch of transfers. Methods, here's the basic study flowchart, or this way. So cons- we started with consent, went through a demographic questionnaire asking about pain, injury level, age, etc. Uh, we took their weight. We went through the wheelchair user shoulder pain index, which is a 15-item questionnaire that asks very specific function-related pain. So do you have pain when you transfer in and out of a car? Do you have pain when you're propelling your wheelchair for, for 10 minutes or longer? And then we went through the USPRS, which is the ultrasound shoulder pain, uh, shoulder pathology rating scale. This is a seven-item ultrasound, essentially a, a, a metric, where a clinician would go over these different tissues in the shoulder, such as the supraspinatus tendon. They look at the glenohumeral joint. Uh, they look at the uh, biceps tendon, these kind of different, different tissues in the joint. And they would assess, the, essentially, the degree of pathology. Uh, so this, we have two metrics here, one for pain and one, one for pathology that are two of our primary outcome measures. We would then have them do a, what's called a quantitative ultrasound, and I'll go over that in a minute, but basically we would take two images of the, the, the shoulder, one of the biceps tendon, one of the supraspinatus tendon. We would have them do the transfer assessment instrument. A clinician would grade their transfers, essentially. We'd have them do a repeated transfers protocol and then finish up with the quantitative ultrasound. So what we were looking at was do repeated transfers affect these ultrasound parameters? And do specific, does transfer technique measured with the tie, does that influence the changes in the, the quantitative ultrasound? So here are two images of the, one of the biceps on the left, one of the supraspinatus on the right. And essentially what we do is we, we collect these images and we run them through a MATLAB program that breaks them down into different numbers. So you have the, the actual thickness of the tendon, which is the vertical distance between the two tendon borders. Uh, then we have, essentially, it, it takes the, the amount of grayscale that, that's present on the picture and it, it quantifies it. So you, it gives you a number of how dark, how light the tendon is, the, the structure of the tendon, how, how well aligned the fibers are. And these kind of all are essentially very quantitative markers of quantitative, I guess, the uh, calculations of these markers for pathology. So we have the clinical signs, which are the USPRS, and then we have these quantitative signs. And the purpose of that is it, this can be, you can quantify changes very acutely with this method, whereas they're not going to be present necessarily using the clinical ultrasound. And so what we would do is if you can see on the upper left, it's kind of hard to see right here, we would essentially put this little steel marker on the skin, we tape it down, and that sits at the, at the footprint of the, at the end of the transducer, 
And that allows us, that would stay still during the protocol. So that would allow us to come back to the same spot twice in a row or three times or four times, however many times you want to do it. And then that also allows you to standardize the, it, take, it allows the program to standardize the distance, standardize the location that we're imaging. So we can be sure that we're coming back to the same spot over and over again and we're measuring actual changes instead of just noise. So here, uh, just a, a little anatomical diagram. Uh, we'll focus on the right here. So the supraspinatus tendon, this is essentially what we're looking at. It's a transverse. You cut it in half, basically, or you cut it down the middle. And we're looking at it right there as it sits over the humeral head, uh, just kind of next to the biceps tendon and in between the infraspinatus tendon. The biceps tendon, what we're looking at is similar thing as it courses through the bicipital groove. We essentially just, it's, it's, if you can imagine cutting it in half and looking at it like that, that's, that's what we're looking at right there. So here's just a, a schematic of the transfer training program that we're, the transfer training, not the training, sorry, the, uh, the protocol, the repeated transfer protocol that we would have them do. So they would do essentially 18 transfers within 10 minutes, back and forth onto a mat table and into their chair. We first had them do six transfers back and forth. We'd have them rest for a minute. Then we'd have them doing six again onto a mat table that is two inches higher. And then have them rest again. And then we'd have them doing six more. And so really quick, in and out. Uh, most people, well, some people had more difficulty than others, but everyone was able to do this protocol pretty well. And so the whole goal of this is to really stress the shoulder and see if there are acute changes perhaps that occur on a subclinical level that we can tell that may, over time, after, say, 20 years in the chair, doing 20 transfers a day would manifest as tendinopathy. So results, onto the good part. Just demographic information, I won't list everything for you, but it's pretty, I'd say, standard distribution of people with uh, spinal cord injury. We did have 19 people with tetraplegia, 50 people with paraplegia. All, everyone kind of had a, I guess an average transfer score overall. The average was average. Uh, in the USPRS, they had a, a, some people obviously had a, a lot of pathology. If you see on the right, the maximum there was 18. The maximum score for that particular exam is 23. So they were almost near complete, you know, complete pathology. Uh, but we can, this is a breakdown of the actual USPRS. We have the, the seven different signs, supraspinatus tendinopathy, biceps tendinopathy, supraspinatus impingement, subscap impingement, cortical irregularity, the irregularity of the, the cortical surface around the bicipital groove, and uh, the greater tuberosity, thickening of the bursa and joint effusion. So you can see all the way on the left, 90% of people had some degree of supraspinatus pathology, which is extremely high. In this room, there's probably, you know, maybe four or five percent. So everyone who had supraspinatus tendinopathy had this kind of irregularity over the, of the cortical surface. Most people also had biceps tendinopathy and supraspinatus impingements, a pretty classical representation of, of rotator cuff pathology uh, in, in this particular sample. This is a graph of the shoulder pain, the wheelchair user shoulder pain index. So what I did was I took the three transfer-related pain items, 
Uh, so they were, they were asking, do you have transfers during, the, or do you have pain during transfers over these, under these different conditions? I summed them and I correlated them with the overall transfer assessment instrument. So overall uh, transfer ability, transfer technique. And you can see that people with the better scores, the better transfer assessment scores, the better transfer technique, all the way towards the right, had a lower uh, pain, basically, had less pain. Um, whereas there was a, an opposite relationship towards the other end of the spectrum. Uh, so this kind of shows that at least, you know, in a lot of people, this graph's not very good because it's just a, it doesn't really show the influence of age and all those kinds of things, but there is a linear relationship there. Uh, so more people with pain also transferred worse. This is a picture of the pathology rating scale, same kind of, uh, same kind of relationship. People with worse transferability had more pathology. And I, I went further and broke it down into weight because as we know, <clears throat> in this particular population, weight has a lot, has a large influence on pathology. People who are heavier tend to load their joints more during transfers or propulsion or whatever. And so we see a, a, a higher rate of pathology in heavier individuals. So you can see the dotted line is, is people who are the heaviest part of the, the group. And transfer technique didn't really help them at all. It was just kind of people who were heavier had, you know, had higher rates of pathology regardless. Whereas the people who were lighter, who were average weight or lower weight, they had, you know, that strong downward linear relationship. So less pathology with better transfer technique in people with, who weighed less. You'll see this as a theme that weight tends to have a very pretty strong relationship with, all, with a bunch of these different tendon markers, such as echogenicity. Echogenicity is the actual darkness of the tendon, how dark it is, which is a, a marker for edema or uh, just a kind of a uh, tendinopathy marker inflammation. And so there was that kind of that inverse relationship where people who weighed less had less fluid accumulation, had a higher collagen content, so healthier tendons overall. People who weighed more had the opposite. Body mass also correlated with the actual changes in the tendons. So people who weighed more, they showed they had a thicker tendon after transfers. And, thick, and a tendon thickness is a marker, again, of inflammation or edema. Uh, swelling of the tendon, which is a, a marker for pathology. So people who weighed less showed fewer changes, which is essentially what you want to see uh, to preserve uh, the tendon from uh, longitudinal development of pathology. We also found that when we broke it down into certain skills, certain transfer skills using that transfer assessment instrument, we found that there were a few that were seemed to be protective of the tendons. So we had trailing hand grip, so how the person, if they're transferring onto the surface, how their trailing hand, you know, is it stable enough? I'll go over those in a minute. Uh, but trailing hand grip was one of them. Seemed to protect the supraspinatus tendon. Uh, shoulder position, did they, did they transfer with an impinged position or not? Seemed to protect the shoulder as well. Um, so here's another example. This is scooting forward on the chair. If you scoot forward on the chair, you have less distance to travel, uh, which stresses your shoulders less. And so that was one of the, the techniques that we found to protect the tendon. And when you scoot forward, you also uh, tend to avoid the rear wheel. And so with 
when you transfer over the rear wheel, not only do you risk kind of shearing the, the buttocks there over the rear wheel, rear, excuse me, rear wheel, you also, I mean, you have to think about it, you're, you have another obstacle to clear when you transfer, so you have to raise your body another three inches or so. It's not very good for the joints. It's not very ergonomic, you'd say. So uh, trailing hand, or hand grips in general, uh, tra trailing hand was the one that we found to be the most uh, protective of the joint. And when you transfer, you tend to put more weight on your trailing arm, so that's perhaps why uh, the better hand grip was protective of the shoulder. So this is, this is a pretty good example of one uh, very stable grip. You know, you're not extending your wrist a lot. I'll show you. So here's some examples of, of poor transfer uh, of um, hand grips. Wrist extension like that, it's not good for carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, puts a lot of stress on the nerve and the tendons in the wrist, but it also is not very stable if you're trying to transfer that way. Same thing with the fists. It's probably better than the hand, the flat hand, but it's not a very stable grip. And we found that this was probably the most, the technique that was most associated with, you know, poor technique was associated most with, with these markers for pathology. Uh, conclusions. Maintaining a lower body weight and using better techniques can help protect the shoulder. Furthermore, transfer training may help delay the onset or progression of shoulder pain and pathology. We actually, through with some of this data and some of my colleagues at Pitt, they developed a transfer training program. It, sh it did show that people did learn at least immediately and that they retained the information for a few days afterwards. I know they're looking to test it further and you know, to see if these people retain it over a long period of time, but the issue is that when you learn these techniques, you're not trained properly early on in your injury, you tend to just develop patterns. Uh, you teach yourself, you, you, so these people who have been transferring for 30 years, they taught themselves how to transfer, so they, it's very difficult to get them to move away from that technique. Uh, so the thought is to, to train them as early as possible after injury. Uh, to kind of just form good habits and uh, you know, motor learning and um, prevent you know, poor technique over the lifetime. One thing that we noticed through this particular training or through these, through these studies is that people with different body sizes, body compositions, people with different levels of injury, uh, muscular strength, all these rules don't necessarily apply because you know we talked to somebody and he said that he can't do the proper hand grip because he's too heavy and he doesn't have the strength to stabilize himself. So he does the wrist or the, 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 the fist one. Um, and so there, you know, there's certain flexibility. It's kind of a, I guess, what do you want to do? Uh, do, you want to, do you want them to, at risk of falling or would you rather protect their shoulders? So that's, I mean, that's up to the clinicians to decide. But there are certain caveats to these particular techniques that we found. So this is, the link up there is the link to the transfer training stuff that we developed, a, a, you know, small plug. It's, if you go there, you'd, you'd select the non-research study option and it kind of goes through different techniques and uh, what, you know, what we've developed over the, the past few years using our research. If you want to contact me, that's my information. I will be happy to answer any questions and send you any publications or references. Uh, that might be helpful in your practice and you do. Yes, no.
To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.